Hi, this is Jim from Safety Wars. Before we start the program, I want to make sure everyone understands that we often talk about OSHA and EPA citations, along with some other regulatory actions from other agencies, legal cases, and criminal activity. Everyone is innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Proposed fines are exactly that, and they are often litigated, reduced, or vacated. We use available public records, news accounts, and press releases. We cannot warranty or guarantee the details of any of the stories we share, since we are not directly involved with these stories, at least not most of the time. Enjoy the show. This, 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 this show is brought to you by Safety FM. And here we go from the border of liberty and prosperity in the highway to north. This is Safety Wars for Thursday, January 18, 2024. Wow. Now, Last year, when the Uvalde, Texas uh, school shooting uh, happened, we covered the program. Well, I, I, no, and I had a... Was the last year or the year before? Uh, I had a pretty interesting uh, podcast here. All right? I don't even think I was on the air uh, with people here. Uh, doesn't, doesn't really matter, but... You could go back and look it up. It was uh, May 24th, 2022, Uvalde, Texas, right? Uh, where an 18-year-old, uh, I'm not going to mention his name, a former student at the school fatally shot 19 students and two teachers, while 17 others were injured but survived. Right? Uh, uh, after uh, shooting and severely wounding his grandmother at their home earlier in the day, a Ramos... Uh, Sorry, I mentioned his name. The person drove to and entered uh, the school. Uh, there are all different things in there. Uh, details, we now have a timeline and everything else here. Uh, very, it's extremely frustrating, to say the least, uh, how this happened. So, here's a question here. Salvador Ramos. Okay. Very frustrating. Uh, yeah, so uh, 22 deaths total, including a perpetrator, right? And you could go back and look, and it was a lot of fantastic stuff going on over there. Uh, sorry, I got a little bit confused there. That happens, but it is safety wars. Now, what I did was, and it's very frustrating to me, like it is with a lot of folks, is you hear a 30-second ditty on the news, right? And again, this report just came out. Not a lot of time to review it, but the advantage of having a podcast or if you're, you're listening on a podcast network or video, like we have video feeds, is we're able to go into things a little bit, a little bit uh, more in-depth and everything else. And we've actually read a large, uh, no, the, primarily the executive summary. This report is like 400 and some pages long. So to boil it down to a 30-second thing, is insulting 
and all of the eventual well is 575 pages plus uh to to boil it down into something very small and everything it's an insult sort of like with the alec baldwin situation that we covered in depth here with the rust uh movie set shooting and you could go and you know we could we shared with you briefly what happened here but you know uh, nobody actually went into that i know of in depth into anything so we're going to go a little bit more in depth than what you're going to hear in a 30 second thing on the news and maybe there'll be a couple of articles over the next couple of days but you heard it here most likely first uh today and we will likely go over the, our one hour on the Safety FM network, and you could go and uh, pick this up uh, on your on the uh, podcast and on the streams. Uh, anyway, that's uh, where this is going. And let's not forget, there were a lot of people killed here, 22 people, including the perpetrator. And, right, Recently, we all know here is that we had a situation in my town here of New City, and we knew the family. We weren't very good friends with the family. A lot of my friends were good friends with the family. Uh, that was uh, murder-suicide, uh, uh, the, uh, the Morgan family. And uh, I'm still impacted by that. So uh, emotionally, even though I wasn't, no, I knew them. I didn't re- really know them. Uh, right, assistant coach of Little League and things of that nature. So this, to say that I don't know how this is and how it impacts you is not really accurate at this point. Uh, I know how upsetting it is and everything else. I did not even put on the lights here. So uh, we're going to do a share screen of the report. And this is your warning here. If you don't want to hear this, uh, and if you're triggered, uh, now this is your five, four, three, two, one uh, warning here. All right, we're going to do chapter by chapter of the executive summary here. Uh, let me see if I could uh, uh, increase the zoom on here. And we'll go from there. All right. I don't know if you can see this or not. Now, this is from uh, portal.cops.usdoj.gov. Uh, I just downloaded this. Uh, the uh, We're going to go chapter by chapter. This is out of the executive summary. You can read all the details. And what I found out, especially when I did my master's project, is that the, they have an executive summary, but then they have like uh, one on the Intergovernment Panel on Climate Change documents, they had uh, the summary for policymakers. So, so they had the executive summary, and then they had the uh, summary of the summary. Hold on here. I don't have the summary. Sorry, guys. There you go. And they didn't have the... Right. So... Most of the news media, obviously, after reading this and the reports that I've seen, they read the summary of the summary. And this is what the overview of the report is. The, based on these facts, 
The C and they had all different types of facts before this. The CIR team identified several critical failures and other breakdowns prior to, during, and after the Rob Elementary School response and analyzed the cascading failures of leadership, decision-making, tactics, policy, and training that contributed to those failures and breakdowns. From the facts and analysis, the CIR team has uh, been able to identify generally accepted practices for an effective law enforcement response to similar mass shootings and offer recommendations in hopes that in the future, law enforcement would be able to act quickly, save lives, and prevent injuries to the greatest extent possible. The most significant failure was that Responding officers should have immediately recognized the incident as an active shooter situation, using the resources and equipment that were sufficient to push forward immediately and continuously toward the threat until entry was made into classrooms 111 and 112 and the threat was eliminated. Since the tragic shooting at Columbine in 1999, a fundamental precept in active shooter response and the generally accepted practice is that the first priority must be to immediately neutralize the subject. Everything else, including officers' safety, is subordinate to that objective. Accordingly, when a subject has already shot numerous victims and is in a room with additional victims, efforts first must be dedicated to making entry into the room, stopping the subject, and rendering aid to the victims. These efforts must be undertaken regardless of the equipment and personnel available to those on the scene. This did not occur during the Rob Elementary shooting response, where there was a 77-minute gap between when officers first arrived on the scene, and when they finally confronted and killed the subject. Several of the first officers on the scene initially acted consistent with generally accepted practices to try to engage the subject, and they moved quickly toward classrooms 111 and 112 within minutes of arriving, but the, once they retreated after they were met with gunfire. The law enforcement responders, including UCISD PD Chief Peter Arundando, who we conclude was the de facto on-scene incident commando, began treating the incident as a barricaded subject scenario and not as an active shooter situation. Report goes on, and here, this is important. Uh, first, as a more, more law enforcement resources arrived, first responders on the scene, including those with specific leadership responsibilities, did not coordinate immediate entry into the classrooms running counter to generally accepted practices for active shooter response to immediately engage the subject to further save lives. Instead, law enforcement focused on calls for additional SWAT equipment, which should not delay the response to an active shooter, requests for delivery of, a cla of classroom keys, and breaching tools, which may, have not, which may not have been necessary to gain entry, and orders to evacuate surrounding classrooms prior to making entry into classrooms 111 and 112. In addition, the overall failure to appreciate the active shooter nature of the situation, responders also failed to act promptly, even after hearing gunshots around 12.21 p.m., which should have spurred greater urgency to confront the subject, instead set off a new renewed search for keys. Not to be flip here, but they do have uh, things, uh, technology out there that can locate your keys. Yes, they do. And uh, I use, I've been using it for the last five years, and it's made my life, actually last probably eight years, and it's made my life a hell of a lot simpler here. But again, and the report's going to go on with this with as far as training and practice here. 
There are also failures in leadership, command, and coordination. None of the law enforcement leaders at the scene establish an incident command structure to provide timely direction, control, and coordination to the overwhelming number of responders who arrived on the scene. This lack of structure contributed to confusion among responders who, about who was in charge of the response and how they could assist. Again, if you are in the hazmat field and you take one of my classes, we talk about the incident command system, right, uh, here, uh, which basically one person and uh, is in charge of no more than seven people, preferably about five people. And it goes up the thing and you have an incident command. I've been an incident commander in private industry on several, back in the day, uh, uh, situations. All right. And until a more qualified incident commander came on site, I was a lot younger. How, you know, today, different story. All right. Depending on the situation. But the, again, incident command system, ICS, is extremely important. And this is one of the reasons why. All right. The, uh, right. There was also failures. Leaders. None of the law enforcement leaders of at the scene established an uh, incident command structure to provide timely direction, control, and coordination to the overwhelming number of responders who arrived at the scene. This lack of structure contributed to confusion among responders about who was in charge of the response and how they could assist. Communications difficulties exacerbated these problems. Per UCISD policies, Chief Arrendando was the on-scene incident commander, but he lacked a radio, having discarded his radios during his arrival, thinking they were unnecessary. And although he attempted to communicate with officers in other parts of the hallway via phone, unfortunately, on uh, multiple occasions, he directed officers intending to gain entry into classrooms to stop because he appeared to determine that the other victims should be removed from a nearby classrooms to prevent further injury. If you've taken... Any of these uh, active shooter courses out there, they tell you right off the bat, if you're hurt on the ground, it's very frustrating. If you're hurt on the ground and everything, the police are going to ignore you, right? And are going to go after the active shooter. This is not what happened here. All right? This is absolutely not what happened here. Now, every one of them, I've taken a number of them. Every one of them says that. But here, again, what didn't, uh, no, and again, the shame and blame thing, right? Okay, I get it. You know, under the human organizational performance, blame fixes nothing. I get it 100%. And this was a complete breakdown of the system. I get it. However, it's kind of hard to, uh, and I'm frustrated at the situation, they, and it goes on, it goes into, oh, it gets, it gets more, uh, more triggering here, right? These failures may have been influenced by policy and training deficiencies. For example, recent training that uh, UCISD PD provided seemed to suggest inappropriately that an active shooter situation can transition into a hostage or barricaded subject situation. Uh, and while many of the uh, FOS, I don't know what that means, had sufficient active shooter and incident command training. Other key FOS responders lacked any active shooter training or incident command training. So it was not uniform across the board. This is why you have uniform training. 
That's why even with our safety meeting program, which we are we work on uh, at my company, where everybody, all my clients uh, that sign up for it, get a weekly safety meeting. Everybody gets the same safety meeting. All right. So we have uniform training throughout the whole company. We have right. So one of the advantages of a, a learning management system is everybody goes on that and gets the same training. All right. So there's no question of it. I'm against that type of training, right? Because it does have, yeah, you can uh, fill the uh, regulatory requirements perhaps. Depends. Some of the systems out there are not. I had a conversation with a client today uh, on this. Uh, but anyway, uh, the vast majority of the officers from different law enforcement agencies had never trained together, contributing to difficulties in coordination and communication on the day of the incident. The lack of pre-planning hampered even well-prepared agencies from functioning at their best. And I'm sure that there were, uh, and I'm sorry to say this, I'm going to say it, I'm sure that there were pissing matches out there because that's the way this stuff goes. All right, so uh, here we have the incident timeline. You could go look it up in the report. I'm not going to do that. It's not germane to our uh, situation here. Chapter 2, taxes, Tactics and Equipment. Police active shooter response tactics have undergone significant changes in evolution over the years. Throughout most of our history, the police, and this is from Chapter 2, Tactics and Equipment. The police response to an active shooter incident was to secure uh, a... Perimeter, call out the SWAT team, and in some cases, negotiators. Most officers lack specialized advanced training on preparation how to handle such situations. The watershed moment and tactical changes occurred following the Columbine massacre of 1999. Following Columbine, law enforcement expert tacticians and associations testified that the new paradigm for responding to crises like Columbine is rapid deployment. Rapid emergency deployment puts significant responsibility on the first responding officers who may not be fully equipped or trained as a SWAT team member. First responders are instructed to go toward the violent offender, if necessary, bypassing injured victims and placing themselves in harm's way. Wasn't a situation like this with the park uh, situation? Right? Down in uh, Florida? Sounds familiar, right? The park school shooting, right? Chapter 2, Tactics and Equipment. Examines the tactics and pieces of equipment that were contemplated, sought, and deployed over the course of the incident response at Robb Elementary School, beginning with the initial officer's approach from outside the school and ending approximately 77 minutes later when the medical triage of victims inside classrooms 111 and 112 began. To see the full, okay, this is a summary here. This is selected, and this is an executive summary. The first officers on scene immediately moved toward the sound of gunfire, which was an adherence to active shooter response, uh, generally accepted practices. Once inside the building, five of the first officers on the scene continued to press down the hallway toward a barrage of gunfire erupting inside the rooms. After officers suffered grazed wounds from shrapnel, First officers on scene did not penetrate the rooms and repositioned to a barricaded subject situation. 
The mindset permeating throughout much of the incident response, even impacting many of the later responding officers. Despite their training and despite multiple events indicating the subject continued to pose an active threat to students and staff in the building, including the likelihood and confirmation of victims inside the room, officers on scene did not attempt to enter the room and then stop the shooter for over an hour after they had entered the building. The shooter was not killed until 77 minutes after law enforcement first arrived. The effort to clear and evacuate the entire West Building was intentional and directed by Chief Arradondo to reserve and protect the lives of children and teachers who remained in the hot zone while the shooter remained in active threat with multiple victims. All right, now, let's remember, context drives behavior with this. Imagine having this type of decision here. We're talking people here. We're not talking investigators. You have... The situation here. What do I do? Tempers are running. People were likely, in my experience, involved, and from what I talked to uh, law enforcement, and do a pissing match. Pardon my French. Uh, right? And no, no clear direction or anything else. Confusion, no radios and everything. This was all not to blame one person, but... Essentially, there should have been practice. There wasn't there. I'd love to know why there were not uh, 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 practices there because that would make me me a lot more interesting here than afterwards, right? Because everybody could be a Monday morning quarterback here, uh, which, you know, hindsight bias in 2020 every time. This was a major contributing factor in delayed to making entry. Uh, the time to took to evacuate the entire building was 43 minutes. Uh, when uh, Chief Arandando realized there were buildings in room 109 that he could not a- uh, access, and ending at 12:21 p.m. when four shots were fired, and that same room was finally evacuated through the windows. During this time and prior to 12:21, there were multiple stimuli indicating that there was an active threat including the barrage of gunfire during the initial response. The children and teachers observed when evacuating classrooms. The single shot fired at 1144. The notification that the class was in session. The notification from the offer on scene that his wife, teacher, a teacher was inside and shot. Multiple radio broadcasts of a 911 call from a student inside the classroom. Some officers on scene believed they were waiting for more assets to arrive, such as shields and a specialized tactical team to make entry. So the recommendations, right, out of Section 2. Again, officers responding to an active shooter incident must continually seek to eliminate the threat and enable victim response. The shooter's immediate past actions, the likely future actions, serve as triggering points that indicate the appropriate response should be in line with active shooter response protocols. An active shooter with access to victims should never be considered and treated as a barricade in subject. Right again, we're the people. I, I I haven't looked it up, but what are the investigators? It's easy for them to say that, but we're, do they receive the training on this? Do they know what was going on before this. And again, not making excuses, but you have to have some context here. Law enforcement training academies and providers should ensure that active shooter training modules include the factors in determining active shooter versus barricaded subjects. Officers responding to an active shooter incident must first and foremost drive toward the threat to eliminate it. 
In the event there are resources available and an opportunity to evacuate by students and victims from the hot zone, officers must balance the risk posed by evacuation versus the risk posed by remaining in lockdown and potentially in the crossfire. Evacuations uh, in such circumstances must be conducted in the most expeditious manner, limited to those immediately in harm's way and not at the expense of priority, priority to eliminate the threat. Again, what's required here with this? We have the Jens Rasmussen work modes here. You have lack of knowledge, rules, and uh, lack of knowledge, rules, and uh, skills. Brain one blank there for a minute. So, at best, what you're going to be able to have is the rules-based thing here going on. Bordering on skills. The reason why you have joint training is to get into that skills-based mode where you're low attention to task, right? And high familiarity with the task. Where you're on autopilot. Okay, we got this situation. We're going to do X, we're going to do Y, we're going to do Z. And without regular training... This won't happen. I've been on emergency response teams where we had active training in private industry, not public sector, where we have active training where we all the time, this is how we're going to do it. Even if it's only a tabletop exercise which, uh, with a bunch of folks sitting around with coffee, tea, donuts, and bagels, talking about and running through this, well, how will we handle this? Right? And that's what the, uh, what the idea is with this. You continuously train, you continuously go and become familiar, find holes in that system. We had a situation at one facility I was at where their, uh, their whole thing was to, we were going to have a general, general evacuation of the facility. Facility was massive, but you weren't allowed to drive. What they found out was that to evacuate the facility would be like an hour of people walking from the uh, uh, point, one point to the evacuation point. Given that it's an emergency, now we have issues of weather, uh, lighting, like if it's at night versus daylight and everything else. They didn't realize that they had all these situations. That's why they had a drill to f try to figure things out. This is why you do training, to figure things out. The other thing is this. You're not going to know who's going to, what the reaction is going to be. That's another reason why you have training and drills. So you're able to identify problem children and problem adults, right? With this, the drills for the children getting out and the tr uh, uh, problems with the adults responding to or evacuating. I tell you, uh, I, I share this story where we uh, had a guy that said, I'm not listening to safety people. They told me to evacuate, bleep them. And he stayed in an area that was on fire. Right? Yeah, that does happen. One of my mentors, uh, uh, John Malul from North Jersey, he had uh, shared a story that there was a building where they had an actual fire alarm going off. It was a legitimate fire call, not a false alarm. And nobody got left the building because that was the corporate culture. Guess what? 
that is and that's a problem that's why you do training and everything else uh um, Officers responding to an active shooter incident must be prepared to approach the threat and breach or enter a room just using the tools that they have with them, which is often a standard-issue firearm or service weapon. Chapter 3. We're moving on to Chapter 3. Leadership in law enforcement is absolutely critical, especially in moments of dire challenge. It requires courageous action and steadiness in a chaotic environment. Leadership can arise regardless of rank or title. Check out our leadership presentation. Such mo- That would be transient leadership, right? Such moments require steady and commanding actions, and based on facts gathered for this report, this leadership was absent for too long in the Rob Elementary School law enforcement response. Chapter 3, Incident Command, blah, blah. Incident Command and Coordination describes key principles related to leadership in an active shooter situation, including the need to direct an immediate response to the active shooter threat and to establish a coordinated and collaborative command and control system. The chapter analyzes the actions of leaders from several law enforcement agencies. Uh, okay, to see the full list of options, go to chapter three. Okay, leadership from the law enforcement a- uh, agencies demonstrated no urgency for establishing a command and control structure, which led to challenges related to information sharing, lack of situational statuses, and limited to no direction for personnel in the hallway or on the perimeter. Failure to establish a unified command led to limited multi-agency coordination uh, for uh, personnel in the hallway. uh, All right, failure to establish a unified command led to limited multi-agency coordination. There was no uniformity re- uh, uh, recognized incident commander on the scene throughout the incident. There was uh, going on. Police Chief Arandando was the de facto incident commander on the day of the incident. Chief Arandando had the necessary authority, training, and tools. He did not provide appropriate leadership, command, and control, including not establishing an incident command structure, nor... Hold on. Hold on. Pardon me, everybody. Sorry, folks. Uh, He did not provide, right? Uh, So they're coming down hard on this police chief. I don't know if that is good or not. No, we know what he didn't do, but what did he do? Right, based on this, what was the context to this? Did he have, right? And uh, it happens a lot of times with organizations I'm with where, hey, you are in charge, right? You are in charge. And then what happens is, well, there's an incident and they're like, you ain't in charge. We ain't listening to you. You gotta, we're gonna, you gotta do this. That might be a situation here, even in the police. I don't know if it was or not, but I could see that happening, especially with a traumatic mass casualty event like this. Right? We would like to think, oh, well, everyone's going to be professional, everyone's this and that. He might not have been able to deal with everybody else there and everything else that's happening because, again, without uniform training throughout everything, without uniform training, you can run into these situations. Right, 
On the day of the incident, no leader effectively questioned the decisions and lack of urgency of Police Chief Arandando and UPD Acting Chief Vargas toward entering classrooms uh, 111 and 112, including within the respective agencies and agencies with concurrent or overlapping jurisdiction. Wow. So let's go and talk about that again. On the day of the incident, no leader effectively questioned the decisions and lack of urgency. What was going on there? Right? I don't know. Context. Missing some here. To see, right, agency leaders must, now this is the recommendations. Agency leaders must immediately determine incident status and the appropriate command structure for the event. Leadership must continually assess and adjust as the threat and incident evolve. As soon as possible and practical, the lead agency should establish a unified command that includes a representative from each primary first responder agency to facilitate communication, situational awareness, operational coordination, and allocation of delivery of resources. The incident ICP should provide timely direction, control, and coordination to the agency leadership, other agencies, and other critical stakeholders before, during, and after an event or upon notification of a credible threat. The ICP must also serve as an intelligence collection and dissemination node. Agencies should create and train on policy and set expectation that leaders will act in a manner consistent with that policy during critical incidents. A memorandum of understanding or memorandum of agreement needs to be developed among agencies within any county or region that provides clarity on who is in command, taking into consideration an agency's training, experience, equipment, and capacity to take the lead during a multi-agency response to a critical incident. Agencies should use the ICS uh, incident command system for more than large-scale tactical events. Thank you, honey. That's uh, got some water here. They should incorporate as many of the ICS principles as possible in response to varying levels of emergencies. Chapter 4. Uh, let me take a break here, a quick commercial break. Give my voice a break. In the professional safety community, communication and planning are just a few keys to your program's success. The question many practitioners have is, where do I start? Dr. Jay Allen, the creator of the Safety FM platform and host of the Rated R Safety Show, has built a global foundation to help you along the way. Go to safetyfm.com and listen to some of the industry's best and most involved professionals, including Blaine Hoffman with the Safety Pro, Sam Goodman with the Hop Nerd, Sheldon Primus with the Safety Consultant, Jim Pozell with Safety Wars, Emily Elrod with Unapologetically Bold, and many others. As individuals, we can do great things, but as a team, we become amazing. Dial into safetyfm.com today and surround yourself with a powerful force of knowledge and support. OSHA Recordables, catastrophic losses, environmental disasters. You want answers? So do I. This is Jim Pozel with Safety Wars. That's my daddy. That's right. I want answers on this one.
But are you asking the right questions? Establishing investigative command after multi-agency response to mass casualty incident, we're on chapter four, post-incident response, is critical to ensuring effective control and coordination of the scene and responsive resources, assignment of investigative assets, collection of information and intelligence, and external and internal communication. In the wake of a critical incident involving law, a law enforcement response, multiple investigations and reviews will often occur. In addition to a criminal investigation of the subject, critical incidents often result in one or more administrative investigations of officer conduct during the incident. Right? So, selected observations. The involvement of, and this is from Chapter 4 of the report, the involvement of local agencies in the hallway during the incident led to the district attorney in consultation with Texas uh, DPS to assign Texas Rangers to solely investigate the incident. Body-worn camera video captures officers walking into the crime crime scene without an investigative purpose or responsibility in the immediate aftermath of the incident. Furthermore, in the days to follow, crime scene preservation was compromised, and the crime scene had to continually stop and start their important work when non-investigatory personnel entered the hallway for the purposes of viewing the scene. The Texas Rangers crime scene team processed an exhaustively documented and incredibly challenging crime scene that put their training policies and procedures to the test. The team conducted an after-action review to examine their efforts and learn as an organization. Among the agencies for the most involved personnel, most have not completed administrative investigations into their office office or actions on May 24th. So what do you do? This is not only for this type of situation, but any situation, secure the scene. Right? You have a sign-in sheet who's coming into there and out of there, and you assign a person who's not very friendly, I'm sorry, to sit there and enforce that rule. Who's coming into that zone? Who's coming out of that zone? Are you authorized to even be here? Right? That's what I, right? And, uh, well, guess what? Maybe come up with a thing of who is authorized to be there. Agencies should have a formal agreement or understanding on investigative command after a multi-agency response. Leaders must respect the integrity of the crime scene and only access assess it with a declared and documented legitimate purpose. Crime scenes need to be held without contamination until completed. Crime scenes should be permitted to do their methodical work without continuous interruptions by VIPs who want to enter the crime scene but have no probative need to do so. Agencies in regional proximity to each other should conduct multi-agency tabletop exercises for complex investigations that may be that may necessitate mutual aid and support from each other. Doing so will build a greater interagency coordination in activities like evidence collection, as well as understanding of jurisdictional boundaries, capabilities, processes, and expectations among partner agencies. The tabletop exercises should include local, state, and federal agencies as appropriate and be designed to exploit weaknesses, uncover strengths, and develop solutions. Agencies should adopt parallel investigations policy for criminal and administrative investigations, including for major incidents while taking 
diligent steps to ensure that information derived from compelled administrative interviews are completely walled off from any criminal investigation into the officer's or agent's actions. Agencies that engage in or after action or critical incident reviews should adequately resource the effort to ensure high quality and timely reports of lessons learned. In other words, you do it immediately afterwards, not a delay, and areas for organizational improvement. All right, now we are on to chapter five. We're going to go over time here, folks. Public communications during and after the disaster, emergency or mass violence event is in itself an intervention that can help victims and community members prepare and respond effectively. Communications from trusted leaders who exude a sense of calmness, confidence, control, and compassion that integrate trauma-informed information can also help those impacted manage their stress and distress reactions to this event. Again, this goes back to Todd Conklin, who's on the Safety FM network with me, who is a mentor and a colleague, right? He had a book, When uh, the Worst Thing Happens. I think that's what it was. So what you have to identify is this. What, this is what we know. This is what we do know. This is what we're going to do to find out and some other information. And if you, you do those three things, what we know, what we don't know, this is what we're doing to find out about it. Very simple, very nice. My, our friend of the program, Jody Fisher, uh, from the PR coach would also, a PR uh, podcast, right? He would also add to this, now is your opportunity, once you cover those three things, your fourth thing would be to go and, uh, uh, would go and talk a little bit about yourself. Oh, yeah, who am I? I'm Jim Polzel. I have a podcast and an audio program. We've been doing this thing for years. This is what we're doing. We have everybody in charge. I mean, you know, calmly with this stuff, and we understand that this is absolutely a, uh, uh, a serious situation, emotional situation, and we're going to ask everybody to please leave the families alone and please do not uh, uh, go and interfere with the crime scene. If you're on the way here, Please go home. You can watch this on TV. We're going to have reports. We're going to have a completely open investigation here. Thank you very much. Have a nice day. And uh, we're going to come back here. We'll be able to, uh, when we have more information, we're able to answer some questions. Short, sweet, and to the point. Nothing more than that. Because the more you talk, the more you're going to have a problem. And this is where we get conspiracy theories to come out. Where we had not too far away from here with Newtown, Connecticut, the same situation where we had, oh, there are this guy in the woods and this happened here and this happened here and everybody's yelling and screaming. And, uh, and guess what happens? Now we have conspiracy theories out there. We know, we, we know what those are. And then when they don't communicate right, and you lose credibility, that adds to the situation. Like, what the hell is this guy talking about? He doesn't know what's on, and you use the wrong words. And again, if you take our uh, accident investigation courses here, right, that I teach privately, we go into statement analysis. And what that is, is what people say and how do you analyze it. And those things, and now you start to have a problem with that. Well, what, did he mean this? Did he mean that? 
What does this mean? This does not mean this. And you start to get into things. You start to, you know, get into yourself into some deep groove now. Then you, before you know it, you have a conspiracy theories out there. Way it is. Thus, both internal and external communications are vitally important in every disaster, emergency, and mass violence incident. These communications must be timely and accurate and provide as much information as appropriate at any given time, providing the community with a sense of trust and confidence during a time in which may, many are learning the most devastating news one can receive. And, uh, okay. Now, I'm going to add this, too. You tell your work crews to keep their freaking mouths shut. Anything with this. You are not authorized to speak on uh, the subject. You're not authorized. Everything comes through the public information officer, which is part of the incident command system, by the way, comes through there. You don't want anybody talking or anything else because they may give... And information. One good example is I was involved in a, in a job and uh, there was a major, it was a uh, oil uh, barge exploded and somebody on the job said, uh, and because they never saw a, uh, they never saw a reporter that they didn't like, right? And so you had celebrity and what happened? Reporter goes up into uh, the, hey, what is, what's going on? What's going on? What's going on uh, in the face? And the guy says, oh, we have bodies floating in the water. There are no bodies floating in the water. So what do you think happened? The, uh, right? The uh, uh, incident commander called up that company said, pick up your guvno and get out. Because you just made our job that much harder. Right? Family members encounter many obstacles to locating their loved ones. Getting access... Right to the hospital and getting information from leadership, law enforcement, the hospital staff in a timely manner. This added to uh, this includes initial information on the reunification site, followed by a series of contradictory posts between UPD and UCS, UCI, uh, SD on reunification. This added to the confusion, pain, and frustration. Inaccurate information combined with inconsistent messaging created confusion and added to victim suffering both on the day of the incident and the days after the mass shooting. Spokespersons for UCISD and Texas DPS, uh, only, the only agencies speaking publicly, did not coordinate their messaging during the afternoon of the incident. Some conflicting information was shared by the two agencies. All social media public messaging was posted only in English. One exception to this was the FBI San Antonio field office's messaging starting on May 25th. The extent of misinformation, misguided, misleading narratives leads to lack of communication about what happened on May 24th is unprecedented and has had an extensive negative impact on the mental health and recovery of family members and other victims, as well as the entire community of Uvalde. Uh, I disagree with this. It's not unprecedented. No, 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 no. This happens quite often during a disaster. Right? Recommendations. To establish leadership in a sense of order, the lead agency must be swift, proactive, accurate, and transparent in its messaging. Relevant information that is not law enforcement sensitive should be typically released as soon as it is confirmed. However, speed must be balanced for the need of for accuracy. 
it is critical that information uh, is, hold on. Uh, right. Relevant information that is not law enforcement sensitive should be typically released as soon as confirmed. However, speed must be balanced for need for accuracy. Right. It is critical that information is verified before it is released, even when there is tremendous pressure to release information quickly. When reunification is complete and the victim's families have been notified, the lead agency should release that information to the community. This is a crucial step in unifying the community to start the healing process. The lead agency should institute ICS and establish a, a Joint Incident Command, JIC, for coordinating the release of all public information, including victim information from all medical facilities that can be incorporated into coordinated news briefings. When an organization recognizes that an error has occurred, it should admit the mistake and share what actions it is taking to rectify the problem, prevent it from happening again. Even when the mistake is egregious, an agency can maintain or seek to regain public trust by being open and holding itself accountable to the community. In these moments, a law enforcement agency can build community trust by holding itself to the highest possible standard. In a community with a large population of limited English proficiency, officials should post emergency information in English and in other predominant languages. This inclusive approach will help ensure that critical public safety messages reach a larger audience and will help boost trust. Intentional transparency is needed for the victims, survivors, and loved ones who are seeking answers about what happened. However, authorities need to provide information in a trauma-informed, victim-centered, and culturally sensitive manner. Right? Support services for individuals who are exposed to tragedies like a mass casualty incident, including victims, family members, and broader community and responders are essential. Helping those affected understand that they can assess crisis counseling, learn good coping skills, reach out to social supports, and access their innate strengths to build their resilience can protect against people developing a mental illness as a result of their exposure to a traumatic event and its aftermath. Adequate support services and resources all contribute to recovery and healing. All right, let me see how we are doing on time here. Okay. Chapter 6, Trauma and Support Services assesses the support and resources provided to survivors, victims, responders, and others involved in the shooting at Robb Elementary School. This chapter describes the acute services provided in the first 24 to 72 hours following the shooting, including during the evacuation process and the establishment of the Reunification Center for Families and Survivors. It also describes intermediate and long-term survivor and victim family support, support services for law enforcement and other responders, and management of emotional trauma support for the broader Uvalde community following the tragic event. I tell you what, uh, our community, with our recent tragedy, they had, uh, I believe, two opportunities outside the family funeral service for the community to mourn. All right? And that was done within... Uh, since it was a holiday weekend, uh, that was done uh, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, four days afterwards. Uh, once the children and adults uh, were rescued from their classrooms during the evacuation process, they received limited 
instruction and direction on where to proceed. Due to the chaotic nature of the evacuation, children and school personnel were not adequately evaluated medically prior to being transferred to the reunification center. As such, injured victims had delayed medical care and were risk of further injury. The establishment of a reunification center was delayed and chaotic. Failures and ex of kin received conflicting instructions on the location of the center. The death notification process was disorganized, chaotic, and at times conducted in a trauma-informed manner. I'm not exactly sure what that means, but apparently, oh, I'm sorry, and at times not conducted in a trauma-informed manner. Okay, I know what that means. All right, responders were not provided timely, immediate access to trauma and support services, and many reported feeling abandoned and unsupported in the weeks and months following the critical incident. Others reported being aware of the services but electing not to use them. Shared trauma is concern for the Uvalde community due to compounding factors, including the size of this community and its interrelatedness. Uh, for the hundreds of law enforcement, medical, behavioral health, and government personnel responded to this event, shared trauma can make what happened even more overwhelming. Law enforcement trauma is also exacerbated by the backlash uh, from the community, such as the community's trauma is exacerbated by the lack of adequate response from law enforcement. The Uvalde community continues to need support and guidance as it struggles from the negative impacts of this failed response, a lack of accountability for those implicated in this failure, and remaining gaps in the information about what happened to their loved ones. I'll say this, and I'll say it on multiple programs. Sovereign immunity strikes again. To see the full list of recommendations, go along. Official, here are some of them in the executive summary. Officials should ensure all victims of uh, mass violence incident uh, are screened medically and assessed for mental health concerns as uh, soon after evacuation and no later than 24 to 48 hours post-incident. In the weeks and months following an incident, victims and family members should receive follow-up or continued monitoring to ensure they are receiving the necessary mental health care and services. Victim advocates should be assigned to communicate with and assist families. Each family member of a deceased person, each injured person should be assigned a victim advocate who works with that family victim uh, consistently throughout the treatment and recovery period period, having frequent communications to ensure the family or victim is aware of and able to access needed services and supports. Local officials engaging in trauma and death notifications should consult national resources and ensure best practices are followed for providing these notifications. Uh, I'm going to uh, notifications. Uh, preparedness and planning can help a locality identify areas they have fewer trained and or experienced staff, thus the areas where they need mutual aid supports. Okay, I'm going to play the uh, outro uh, for the, your folks on the Safety FM network, and then we're going to be right back and finish up this report. 
The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and its guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the company. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are only examples. They should not be utilized in the real world as the only solution available as they are based only on very limited and dated open source information. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the company. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic, recording, or otherwise, without prior written permission of the creator of the podcast, Jay Allen. Okay. And this is hour two, and we're going to do the introduction over again and then continue with the report. Hi, this is Jim from Safety Wars. Before we start the program, I want to make sure everyone understands that we often talk about OSHA and EPA citations, along with some other regulatory actions from other agencies, legal cases, and criminal activity. Everyone is innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Proposed fines are exactly that, and they are often litigated, reduced, or vacated. We use available public records, news accounts, and press releases. We cannot warranty or guarantee the details of any of the stories we share, since we are not directly involved with these stories, at least not most of the time. Enjoy the show. This, this, this show is brought to you by Safety FM. And we are on a special two-hour episode of Safety Wars. We are continuing with the Uvalde uh report released on the Uvalde shooting from uh, a couple years back. All right, the report was uh, released today. And uh, we're just going through it. Unlike all your other shows, we are here first doing this. Everybody else got the 30-second blurb. Not us. We got the report, and we're going to do a deep dive tonight on this with you on this. That's what we're doing. Like and share us on all of our social media networks and tell people about Safety Wars. If you want to uh, hire us, give us a call. 845-269-5772 or jim at safetywars.com Let's get back what we're doing. 
By the way, you're listening to royalty-free music, and it's called Falling. I came across this uh, when I was uh, doing something for my son. He needed a video made. Uh, you can check out that video on my social media feed, uh, Jim Polzel. And here we go. We can turn this off. Victim advocates. Uh, so we're on section, uh, chapter six, trauma and support services. Trauma advocates, right, are, should be assigned and right with someone, with the, each family or victim, whatever is appropriate. Local officials engaging in trauma and death notification should consult national resources and ensure best practices are followed when providing these notifications. Preparedness and planning can help a locality identify areas where they have fewer trained or experienced staff, thus areas where they uh, need mutual support aids. I know back in the day, I'm not sure exactly how they do it now, but back in the day, they would have a religious figure. So if you know that a family is Catholic or they would have a Catholic priest or a deacon or someone appropriate like that or Protestant, the appropriate pro Protestant denomination, Jewish, uh, proper Jewish folk, uh, uh, rabbi, uh, imam for Muslim and things of that nature. I don't know what the appropriate thing to do is, but uh, you have to have somebody, you know, you got to know what you're doing. And by the way, when I help companies prepare for emergency response, I tell them they got to have a program like this. Ha this could be part of your emergency action plan also. So the emergency action plan has certain requirements under OSHA, but that's the minimum. You can add in there, hey, this is how we're going to communicate and build on from there. Leaders from responder agencies need to provide services to all personnel involved in a mass casualty incident, which for some agencies means everyone on their staff. These services should include resources on post-disaster behavioral health and secondary traumatic stress referrals to healthcare providers and peer support. As part of a disaster preparedness planning communities, including law enforcement, need to plan for the aftermath of a critical event. This planning should include generally accepted practice processes, education and training, support and resources. A trauma-informed, culturally sensitive approach should be applied to the victims, survivors, and impacted community members, as well as responders and their families. A family assistance center should be established within 24 hours of an incident with a security plan that includes external law enforcement uh, presence and a process for internal vetting of providers and those seeking services. So in other words, everybody wants to help during this stuff. Well, who the hell are we going to get? Are we going to get somebody who uh, got like a, uh, a ordination online that day? Oh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a minister, and, uh, you know, blah, 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 I'm going to go in counselors. Or do we want professional counselors? Do we want, like, on the community emergency response team, the CERT team that we have here in Rockland County, we have everybody's skills identified, and we put them through a training program, and then, hey, okay, and communicate. Well, you know, what are you going to do? This is Again, that's why I, I really stress, and it's fallen out of favor. It comes and it goes... Uh, uh, community emergency response team. Very, it could be critical with this because instead of having a stranger deal with things, you have a member of the community deal with things, potentially. Right, and vet people, interview them. The definition of responders should be expanded, consistent with generally accepted practices to include disciplines other than law enforcement, fire, and rescue staff, such as 
dispatchers, EMT healthcare providers, ambulance drivers, behavioral health providers, uh, faith-based leaders, and certified safety professional. I, I added that one. Faith-based leaders. This should be reflected in all support services provided by resiliency centers, non-government and governmental agencies, uh, entities, and other support service providers. So uh, with one of my clients where we had to respond to a, fate, a double fatality, uh, we had a minister come in to talk uh, during uh, some of the recovery phase uh, to talk about this stuff and a health counselor uh, here uh, deal with mental health, that sort of thing. Uh, and we made it a point uh, with the survivors of the accident uh, that we had that every year for years we would go through and uh, have a conversation because it's from my understanding, my reading of disaster response resources where now I'm an authorized disaster response uh, worker trainer for uh, authorized by OSHA, where it's not in the first couple of years that this matters a lot of times for the responders. It's usually five years. Five years afterwards, that's when it hits them, right? After all the excitement is over and everything else, that hit. No, so five years is like a critical year. So this happened on May 24th, uh, 2022. So basically every year around May, you got to sit down with these folks and work increasingly now, uh, where, when appropriate. Train people on your staff to try to recognize destructive behaviors and uh, different behaviors and educate your staff on, hey, how are you feeling? Right? This is where I... No, I always say get uh, a dozen donuts and coffee goes a long way with a lot of folks or pizza, what have you. With that, uh, now find out what works, right? Everybody's different. Some people may not want to talk about it. Some people may want to talk about it. It all depends. While the primary goal of school districts across the U.S. is to educate, they must also prepare. And I'm going to, con- I'm giving you some warning. I'm going to, give you my plan, part of the solution, small part of the solution, ranging widely in scale and seriousness. In addition to certain safety functions maintained at the school district administration level, such as threat assessment teams, school safety committees, student counseling service, physical security maintenance and upgrades, many school districts throughout the nation partner with local law enforcement agencies to establish school resource officer programs, and some create their own police departments. Among the... uh, 1,207 independent uh, school districts in Texas, 309, about 26%, have their own police department, including uh, Uvalde uh, CISD, right? School district, I guess. Uh, All right, and what do we have here? Let's scroll on down. Observations. This is, again, from the executive summary. UCISD's campus safety teams met infrequently. And annual safety plans were based largely on templated information that was at times inaccurate. So I think most people in uh, the industry have been in this industry for long enough have templates. The question is this, are the templates accurate? I gave the report one time of a uh, that we were joking on here about an indoor air quality report that recommended uh, cleaning of HVAC units on a piece of building that had window air conditionings and uh, base for heaters, right? Clean the HVAC systems. 
right? Uh, stuff like that, both exterior and in U.S. Uh, the school had a culture of complacency regarding locked door policies. Both exterior and interior doors were routinely left unlocked, and there was no enforced system of accountability for these process policies. Door audits were conducted but not done systemically, uh, or nor were they documented. On May 24th, all the exterior doors and at least eight interior doors of the building where the incident where it took place were unlocked. Law enforcement arriving on the scene searched for keys to open interior doors for more than 40 minutes. This was partly the cause of the significant delay in entering to eliminate the threat and stop killing and dying inside the classrooms. Four years into its existence, the UCISDPD was functioning without any standard operating procedures. A range of UCISD employees, including administrators, faculty, support staff, and police officers, told the CIR team um, that they had no knowledge of, nor had they been informed about, their school police department's policies and procedures. The UCISDPD has recently drafted standard operating procedures. All right. School district uh, police departments should enter into MOUs that establish mutually agreed upon clear jurisdictional responsibilities with other neighboring agencies that are likely to respond to a critical incident on school property. The MOUs, and that's Memorandum of Understanding, should account for not only routine criminal activity, but critical incidents. The MOU should address the issue of a unified command in addition to the incident command and, in, and account for the capacity and capabilities of the respective agencies. This is one of the reasons why in the 1910-120 Haswaffer standard, they require a uh, re responsibilities, an ICS, right? You have to have a org chart, right? organizational chart. Law enforcement, first responders, emergency management, and other municipal government agencies should coordinate with school districts to conduct multi-agency preparedness exercises on at least an annual basis. Exercises should operate in accordance with the state and local regulations regarding active threat exercises. The exercises should be incorporated into the emergency operations plans and campus safety plans. Communities should adopt a multidisciplinary approach to school safety that includes school police, law enforcement, school officials, mental health professionals, and other community stakeholders. It is especially important that all voices in the community school community be heard, including faculty, staff, administrators, counselors, nurses, resource officers, parents, and students. Every stakeholder must feel empowered to play a role in reducing fear and raising this level of safety in and around schools. Each campus should establish and train school safety committees that will meet at least monthly for this purpose. School districts should invest in upgrading or replacing all doors or locks throughout its campuses to remedy this issue so that doors can be locked from the inside. School districts should implement universal access boxes. A universal access box refers to a lock box that contains master keys located near the entry points of school buildings that can be assessed by authorized emergency first responders and school district staff. School districts should ensure the emergency alert systems are well understood by all staff. In the case of UCISD, district leadership should issue a district-wide clarification on the use of PA systems conduct in conjunction with Raptor emergency alerts. 
I've used the Raptors system on some job sites I've been on. It's actually pretty neat uh, here. Uh, and those are construction jobs. Now, uh, what am I going to say here? Real simple. Uh, my understanding is that there a lot of this stuff was already required of them. I would remove, do two things. Here are my recommendations. Remove sovereign immunity from... Remove sovereign immunity from uh, these people. So if you don't do your job, like prepare for emergencies, you don't do what you're supposed to do, you go to jail. Real simple. It's a criminal act. That'll go a long way, number one. Number two, I would place all public schools under OSHA, uh, under OSHA. Not uh, the... Uh, not the uh, Kiosha like we have in New Jersey or New York Pesh, anything like that. Don't put, don't have it. Have it under federal OSHA. This way, every time that there's an incident like this, there's a federal investigation. And there's a potential for federal, for citations and fines and on top of criminal, criminal liability. That's what I would do. That because now you're going to say, well, how's that going to help the kids? It's going to help them indirectly because the teachers will be helped. The teachers and everything will be helped. Then you're protecting the teachers. You're going to be also protecting the children. That's what I think has to happen in short and sweet because right now public employers do, are not covered under OSHA. Yeah, something might happen there. Some OSHA may come in and make some recommendations. And they, yeah, that all happens. I get it. But actual enforcement, we're going to be citing people, dozen uh, organizations, not from what I've seen. All right. So basically, we all have a right to a safe and healthful workplace uh, free of recognized hazards, except if you're a public school teacher. There's uh, no real. Uh, Effective, uh, effective uh, right there. Extreme, not protected, really. I had conversations with teachers uh, and uh, union members, right? Uh, un union teachers, union leadership in these teachers' unions. And they just say, hey, New York Pash is a joke, Jim. Especially during the COVID thing, they found out how big of a joke they were. Pre-incident planning is crucial. And now we're chapter eight, pre-incident planning and prep. Uh, most failures in response can be traced back to failures in pre-incident planning and preparation. And it, this is true of a mass casualty and incident here. Selected observations. Responding agencies lacked adequate related policies and in most cases, any policy on responding to active attackers. The Uvalde Emergency Operations Center developed an adequate uh, emergency management plan. However, not all the relevant agencies and organizations actively participated in the process, drills, and exercises, which ultimately contributed to a failed emergency response. The MOU between UPD and UCISDPD that was active, uh, the delay that was active the day of the incident 
failed to adequately outline the expectations and authorities for a response to a mass casualty event, mass violence event. The agency has failed to exercise the MOU nor cross-train in preparation for a critical incident. Responding agencies had minimal exposure to incident command system or national incident management system, NIMS, uh, or of those serving the top leadership positions within the primary responding agencies. Uh, only UCISD PD Chief Arandando and the Texas DPS Regional Director had taken training ICS slash NMS. Uh, I might add that that's free training from these uh, groups. You get pretty good training from the uh, 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 FEMA Independent Study Program. Nothing there, really? Could do that training in an afternoon online. Didn't nobody bothered to do it? No, you freaking tell me where where the problem here is. Now, this is what the other thing is here with this. All right. How did the people get their jobs? Are they politically appointed positions, elected? I know sheriffs are elected and have are sometimes independent an independent law enforcement agency independent of everybody uh uh you could uh various groups uh sheriff mac is the one that uh discusses this a lot uh but uh no where how do they get their jobs were they uh, that's my question were they political appointments or were they patronage jobs or were they sit-down jobs? Hey, nothing ever happens here. You're getting hired. How do they get their jobs? Personnel uh, from uh, responding agencies rarely train and exercise on, in a multi-agency environment. Responding officers have levels of active shooter training that varied in terms of their length and time and quality, leading to failures in operation, uh, operationalizing the training. That's why the military has basic training for everybody. Every agency must have a selected recommendations. Every agency must have a clear and concise policy on responding to active attacker situations. Agencies should regularly review after-action reviews with other regional agencies to plan as a region for a coordinated and collaborative response to possible similar events. Agencies should consider obtaining state or national level accreditation to adopt and maintain standardized policies and procedures. This process also ensures accountability and transparency that can enhance confidence and trust in law enforcement among the communities they serve. Regional public safety partners should plan, train, and exercise unified command for complex incidents. This includes federal, state, and local enforcement, fire, EMS, and emergency management, as well as other governmental and non-governmental agencies that will respond to a critical incident. Elected officials should establish a multi-agency coordination group to provide the policy guidance to incident personnel and support services uh, and support rescue, resource prioritization, and allocation. Typically, these groups are made up of government agency or private sector executives and administrators whose organizations are either impacted by or provide resources to an incident. MAC groups enable decision-making among senior officials and executives and delegate command authority to the incident commander to cooperatively define the response and recovery mission of a strategic uh, and strategic direction. Additionally, MAC groups identify operational priorities 
uh, and communicate those um, uh, objectives in the Emergency Operations Center and pertinent functions of the ICS and Joint Information Center. Interagency training drills and exercises help to build relationships at the frontline officer level and if attended by office law enforcement supervisors can further strengthen relationships than the efficacy of a multi-agency response to a mass casualty event. Though policies may differ slightly among agencies, overarching com commonalities are the same in an active attacker's incident. Each PIO should draft a crisis communication plan and practice it at least four times a year with smaller events. This will help identify problem barriers and solutions and ensure everyone is familiar with the plan and knows their role instead of trying to figure out during a crisis. And I'm just going to read this here. We hope the observations and recommendations in this report will improve the preparation and response by those law enforcement agencies assessed during this review, as well as other law enforcement agencies throughout the country. We also provide this independent review of what transpired as a measure of dedication not only to those who lost their lives on May 24, 2022, but also to the surviving victims family members, and others deeply and forever affected by this tra tragedy. So thank you for hanging on here. Uh, what is it? Uh, an hour and 24 minutes. Uh, this is the Think Critical Incident Review active shooter at Robb Elementary School from the Department of Justice released today. And again, we are the first, as far as I know, going through the entire executive summary. So, uh, thank you for listening. Uh, we're gonna go. Th uh, we're gonna cut the program right now. Get this uploaded to the podcast uh, network, and uh, we're gonna go from there. We'll be back at you, God willing, tomorrow. For safety words and the Safety FM network, uh, this is Jim Polzel. Thank you for listening. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and its guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the company. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are only examples. They should not be utilized in the real world as the only solution available as they are based only on very limited and dated open source information. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the company. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic, recording, or otherwise without prior written permission of the creator of the podcast, Jay Allen.